You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. That's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. I don't dress for the hired help. Let's see your passport, Franks. Occupation transport consultant? It's a little cute, isn't it? I'll finish dressing. Oh, please don't. Not on my account. Welcome, everyone, to the 602 Club, Trek FM's dedicated general geek show. I've just... I'm ecstatic to be back. I mean, it's been so much fun being back here in the new year. We've had so much to talk about already. One of the things I am most excited about is to dive back into the James Bond series that we've been doing. And this year, our plan is to not only wrap up Sean Connery, but to get through every single Roger Moore film as well. So I know it's ambitious, but that's the plan. And in that way, we'd be able to jump into... The uh, wonderfully talented, uh, seriously underrated Timothy Dalton, and of course the one that I grew up with because those were the movies coming out at the time, Pierce Brosnan. So I'm I'm really excited. We've got a lot to talk about here. I'm going to introduce who we've got with us. We actually have a new player. That's right. We're dealing her into the back rack table. I'm so excited. But uh, first and foremost, John Champion. It's great to have you back. Hey, it is a pleasure to be back. I mean, we're we're doing this. We're wrapping up Sean Connery so soon. It feels like we just started yesterday. I, I, I'm glad to be able to see this out. Yeah, I, I, I feel like, you know, he lived more than twice, you know, at least six times. <laughs> uh, yep. But yes, it's it's finally coming to an end. And I'm very excited uh, to, to be here with you to talk about this film. It's, it's going to be interesting. On top of that, we've added a new friend to the show as i said we're dealing her in to the table here uh and that's right we've got a wonderful new voice uh, a female voice to talk about bond and her name is christy boris hey thank you so much for having me i'm so excited to be here in the casino with you guys yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I hope everybody's, uh, you know, ordered their vodka martinis or their, you know, <laughs> lemon teas, whatever helps you win. Um, but yeah, this is going to be exciting to, to dive in. Uh, before we get started, of course, just a quick reminder, you can find all the shows at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're a feature provider there. Uh, of course, you can also hit us up with the star rating and review. Uh, so do that while you're over there in iTunes. We're on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Send us an email at Trek.FM slash contact. Choose the 602 Club. That comes straight to me. And then any of the hosts that are on that week. Of course, you can also find us on our Babel Conference, which is the listeners-only discussion group on Facebook. You can type Babel into the search field on Facebook, or if you're at the website, Trek.FM, click Discussion on the menu bar. So... Now, Christy, uh, John and I have been have been doing this for a while, uh, but I wanted you to have the opportunity to kind of share with the listeners what made you want to join this series, like, uh, and how far back does your relationship with James Bond go? Sure. So, I, I actually, my relationship with James Bond goes back to when I was actually really young, probably five years old. I don't know. 
for sure the age, but um, my dad has always been huge into Bond, among other things. And so it, it began as this relationship of being, bringing me closer to my dad um, and watching through the films together and feeling like I, I had a best friend that was always excited to show me this world that he'd known for so long. And I think, honestly, that uh, his favorite Bond has always been who ended up being mine as well, uh, Sean Connery. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, obviously have to give credit to all of them for the work that they've done. Um, I know that you guys recently talked about Lazenby. And um, in 2012, when my husband and I got married, he bought me the set of all of the Bond films. So maybe it was a little bit later because it did have Skyfall. Um, but I had no idea that Lazenby only did one film until I had that set. Nice. That's awesome. Cool. So what did you think of that? I, now I'm really curious of what you thought about his, his one film, his one portrayal. So for me, the only drawback was that because I love the Connery Bond so much, and I, I think of Bond as kind of this player, very suave, has it all together kind of guy, it was out of character to me it felt like, well, he's not supposed to get married. He's just supposed to continue being Bond. And what does he mean he's going to not be Bond anymore, you know? Yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, quickly, if if you had to name like maybe two or three of the Bonds that are your favorite that you tend to watch over and over again, which ones do you go to in that rotation? Well, before I first started watching back through all of them when I got the set again, I always kind of remembered Diamonds Are Forever, ironically. <laughs> Um, I guess it just stuck out in my mind in, in a lot of visual ways. And so I remembered it more. And then the song at the beginning. Um, but then rewatching it right before the show this time for the third or fourth time I've seen it, um, I suddenly <laughs> felt really sad. I guess that in the past I thought it was so great because it seemed <laughs> at this point in my life it felt really disjointed. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome oh gosh that's wonderful um well that's that's exciting though i mean i'm so glad to, to have both of you here to talk about this and and one of the interesting things for coming back to bond and and you mentioned this christy it's a great segue you know lazenby did one film and uh, even before it was completely finished they already knew he wasn't coming back and so the search began not only for a new Bond, but what are we going to do with him story-wise? And it's very sad because the story, if Lazenby had been Bond, their plan was to pick straight up from that with Diamonds Are Forever and go into this film uh, very much a revenge-driven film that Bond was going to be out for revenge for the death of his wife. And... It's sad that we never got the opportunity to have that because I think the the story would have been fantastic. I mean, we do get films later on where Bond will go out for revenge. I think License to Kill specifically is probably the the big one, but there are other movies in which he kind of goes rogue and does his own thing. I just it's it's frustrating because after that the the story it goes through a lot of different changes, uh, John. And uh, one of them was they thought about maybe having Goldfinger's twin brother in the movie. Well, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about a movie that um, more than 40 years ago, the Bond producers were already thinking about doing a multi-film arc. 
that you would have actually carried on a story and carried on characters from the previous film. Irma Bunt would have been back and Bond would have taken out his revenge partly on her, we assume. Um, we didn't get that until Daniel Craig's Casino Royale came out that we actually started to build continuity and consistency within the movies from one movie to the next. So it's kind of cool to me that they had at least thought about it back then. And um, yeah, I think probably a poor choice to have uh, started out with the conceit of Goldfinger's twin. Um, I, I think that partly due to the idea that Connery was coming back and the producers are making a very conscious effort to remind the audience, this is James Bond. This is James Bond. No, it's not that other guy. This is James Bond. Remember James Bond? You saw him in all those other movies? Well, he's back. <laughs> so I think that would have been a little too much uh, gilding the lily, as we might say, um, to just force it upon you that this is connected to Goldfinger as well. Well, and, and, and it's an interesting thing, too, because you can also tell that they're trying to connect back to those Bonds because they can bring Guy Hamilton back as director. Mm-hmm. Which is is fine with me. Uh, it it just is interesting because where they end up story wise, actually comes from a dream that Cubby Broccoli had about Howard Hughes, and that's the jumping off point. I don't know. I don't know, Christy. Maybe it's just me, but that seems like a nebulous idea or place to start for a Bond story. Yeah, it it seemed to me like it such a strange concept <laughs> that that he would go i had a weird dream last night let's make that into a movie um yeah i, I really like though that this one it it did seem to have a, a good jumping off point to me even though that's where it came from but then later in the movie it felt like it kind of fell apart and they were going in a million different directions you know what i mean yeah well i don't know i don't know who among us has not had a dream about howard hughes and then uh, felt immediately inspired to write a screenplay about it. So, you know, I, I, I certainly can relate to Cuppy Broccoli on that. Um, <laughs> John, you have like three of those scripts lying around. <laughs> I do. I do. You know, he, he's an interesting character. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the more about him we learn, the better. Well, and, and it's I think you're absolutely right, Christy, because when we just talk about the story, the film actually kind of does start with the process that they were going to go in in the first place, which is that Bond's out for revenge against Blofeld. And so it it does start in that vein. And then, like you said, as you kind of go on, it seems to, like, de-evolve into all of these strange subplots that don't necessarily always seem to connect one for one with where you started. And... it's like you have a great idea, but everything gets charactered, I think. It's funny that even though in this you start out, of course, with those scenes of Baden trying to find Blofeld, right? That because it's Connery, I kept thinking about Blofeld from You Only Live Twice. Even though we just watched a movie in which Blofeld is the bad guy, and even though we just watched a movie in which the death of Bond's wife is can be pinned back to Blofeld, because it's Connery, that was out of my mind. And I kept thinking about the history of 
Connery with the Donald Pleasance Blofeld. I agree with you completely because everything feels, especially even in that confrontation with him, so much more slapsticky. It doesn't feel like a guy who's out for revenge about his wife. I mean, Bond has a wicked pocket protector. The guy goes to get his gun and comes out with a mousetrap. I mean, what is going on in this movie? <laughs> uh, you have to admit, though, that is the coolest water gun you have ever seen. <laughs> and I have ever since I first saw this movie, I wanted a water gun that looked like that one. I, I mean, not only that, but I, I, he goes out, you know, uh, Blofeld in, in a flaming thing of mud. I, I mm -hmm. mean, it's just... It really is. It's it's all over the place. Um, and 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 the story. I think you can tell that it went through a lot of iterations and and never finally settled into something very uh, really that congeals. Honestly, uh, I mean, I think those the that those mud potato things that he gets poured into congeal better than the actual <laughs> film. <laughs> um, and and it's also interesting because on top of Connery coming back on top of all the story things that are going on one of their thoughts and before they even hire Connery they actually hire John Gavin an American to play James Bond because they thought that Americanizing Bond would help help keep him fresh and change things up. And that's one of the reasons they get an American writer as well. Uh, they, they want to go to Vegas and all this kind of stuff. And so how do you think that could have worked at all? I mean, just straight up. What do you think, Christy? I don't. Um, I, I've always loved that Bond has been a Brit and, uh, you know, both as a, um, as the character and then the, kind of isms throughout the films usually are leaning toward British customs sometimes. And um, I think that it would have taken me out of the character. I don't know about you, John, as well. But yeah, I mean, I just I feel like Bond is British. And, you know, like I said, has, has these things about the way that he speaks and um, his manners and things like that, that it would have just messed with it too much. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, this was also the time that they had offered um, Adam West the role yeah. and he yeah he knew better and he just turned it down he was like no no uh bond is a brit <laughs> this is not a character for me it's very wise um they have to have that european feel uh it, it, it's it, it's a different character you know if we've seen the casino royale telefilm with uh, jimmy bond played by barry nelson we know that it's a shadow of james bond so um, there's no way that could have worked. Well, and, and it's, it seemed like an interesting thing to me because it, as much as we've talked about, John, the building that they've been doing, they, they understand their mega series status. Mm -hmm. Why would you even think about messing with the formula that much? I mean, that's not just stretching the formula. To me, that, that's breaking what you've made because... Bond is is quintessentially British. I mean, th there's absolutely nothing about him that says American. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, his attitude, his suave, his his knowledge, his vocabulary, his education, everything just screams, you know, uh, upper class Brit. Even though we know he's 
and the orphan and been trained and all these things. But it, it I. I don't, I don't understand what they were thinking. Well, I, well, let's Americanize it. That'll, that'll help. Like you could keep the rest of the world the way it was and just make him American and it's still fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, and maybe they, maybe there was some conversation of that it's just a name that somebody takes on. Because then I think you really would be able to make that argument that Bond is a name that's passed on from one person to the next who takes up the mantle, uh, and but is a different person. Whereas, you know, you keep it British, it feels more continuous, if that's even a word. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, luckily, though, United Artists didn't know what they were thinking either. <laughs> and so uh, they do everything possible to woo Sean Connery back to the role um, because they feel like that's, that's, the, that's the way to go. So I wanted to ask both of you about that. Um, one, very cool, Connery uses the money that he makes, which is an awful lot of money, uh, 1.25 million pounds uh, that he makes for this film, which is just an outstanding amount at that point. Uh, he uses that entire fee to establish a Scottish International Trust Fund, uh, Scottish International Educational Trust, uh, which is fantastic, where Scottish artists could apply, uh, go for funding without having to leave the country and pursue their careers in Scotland. So uh, very cool that Sean uses this opportunity to do something that doesn't benefit himself. I think that's wonderful. But I wanted to ask both of you, besides that, which is incredible, does it work to have Sean back? for you what about you christy um as much as i'd like to say yes because i love him and and um used to love this movie so much as a younger person i think no it doesn't because of kind of what you're saying before where it would it would feel like it had more continuity continuity if you had lazenby back certainly in that storyline of his revenge against blofeld um but then also that it seems like from Sean taking a break um, and then coming back in on this film and then, as we know, not going on to, to live and let die, that he was kind of disconnected from it personally anymore. And um, I actually watched some of the special features with the disc and um, in an interview with BBC, he even said, not really that into it anymore. Um, felt like he actually said that he thought that the, the previous one was not so good. <laughs> Um, and, uh, seemed like he was just interested in other things and said, I'm not only an actor in life. I'm also into banking and secondhand cars and think I might trust in some other things and acted like Bond was a tired character. Yeah. You know, uh, th this is the 1.25 million pound question. Um, I think they certainly got their money's worth in terms of having the, the not just the star appeal of Connery, but this, what you're buying is you're buying the story. You're buying the story of Connery coming back to play Bond. So that's really the value there, you know? There's something really odd, though, that I feel like they're trying to cram too much into this movie. You're trying to cram every Bond trope in there, again, to remind the audience, this is Bond and this is Sean Connery. Forget that other thing that happened. This is what it's really all about. 
And at the same time, you're cramming in this American sensibility by having locations here. I say here, surrounded by Southern California. Vegas is that way, <laughs> and wherever the oil derrick was, that way. So it feels very different. And this is kind of an odd thing to say. Sean Connery was about 40 when he made this movie. It feels like a long time has passed since Dr. No. It feels like a different world. It really does. And it's strange because 40 is not old. As I sit here, <laughs> please, 40 is not old, right? But I think there's maybe a strange expectation of we saw a, what, a 31-year-old Sean Connery in Dr. No. The world has changed a lot between 1962 and 1971. It just seems like a different guy coming back to play this role. Now, we wouldn't say anything if you, if you said, oh, okay, well, here's a 40-year-old Pierce Brosnan or a 40-year-old Daniel Craig. You go, oh, okay, well, that, that's, sure, that sounds right for Bond. There's something that doesn't feel right about this. Now, I will say that it seems like Connery is having a little more fun in this movie than maybe he had in Thunderball. We talked about maybe some of that that settling in feeling of Thunderball, that it's sort of you know walking through the motions. Um, I think he's enjoying himself because for one and a quarter million pounds and getting to gamble every night while they're on location, sure, he was having the time of his life. But um, there's something that doesn't quite feel right about his place in this movie. The thing I, f I felt like that didn't feel right was Bond became in Connery's hands a character of the character that had started out in Dr. No. Uh, when he says to Tiffany Case, um, weren't you a blonde the last time I saw you? I tend to notice right. little things like that. You know, it just little things like that kind of amped up the the just the goofiness of what's happening, uh, as well as this is the film, too, where Bond is overly obnoxious about how much he knows about everything, mm -hmm. uh, I noticed as well. And so there are just little things like that that continue to build throughout the movie that decrease my enjoyment of even having Sean back. And I'll also say, because you mentioned 40, you know, hey, John, I'm I'm a couple of years away from being 40 myself. So, you know, 40 is the new 30. Uh, I, I'm yes. right there with you. Yeah. Uh, 40 is <laughs> right. the new 20. Come on. Don't forget it. Yeah. Don't forget uh, it. Yeah. But I'm watching this movie and it feels like maybe 20 30 years has been happening to Sean specifically between yeah. the last time he played Bond and this time. I mean, it it's like Ewan McGregor and then Alec Guinness. Um, <laughs> you know, one looks like my cool uncle and the other one looks like Grandpa Bond. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's really strange. I mean, um, look, it, it's unfair to make an assumption about how anybody should age. You know, oh, definitely. Yes. That, 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 that's sort of a, a dangerous territory to get into. And and I, I say, look, if if somebody ages and will do big finger quotes gracefully, 
great. Okay, that, that's their genetics at play. If somebody decides to go through every bit of plastic surgery they can afford, fine. You know what? That's your prerogative, too. If you're happy with the outcome, then you go right ahead. People age differently. People age faster or slower. I mean, I, I think every generation looks back at photos of the generation before and they say, wow, they they looked much older in high school than I did, <laughs> you know? So maybe we're seeing a little bit of that in looking at Sean Connery and, and a movie that came out before all of us on this podcast were born, <laughs> you know? Um, but... But that said, you, you can't deny that, you know, we've been watching these movies in order. and We've been kind of compressing the timeline from nine years down into under a year. And, and it's dramatic, not just how Connery changes, but how movies change and how settings and fashion changes. And maybe they just didn't lend themselves. All those elements didn't lend themselves to necessarily make the best movie. There's... You know, there's another thing going on here with, um, and I know that we'll get into this a little bit later, but there's another thing going on here with the setting, but but also this idea of Bond having to out-Bond Bond. And this is an enormous weight hanging over the heads of the producers. You don't just have to outdo the previous Bond. You have to outdo the perception of the previous Bond. So every eight or 10 or 12 year old kid who saw Goldfinger in 1964 is now remembering that as the best movie they ever saw in a movie theater. And you've got to do everything as a producer and writer to try to outdo that perception for then that, you know, 18 year old, 20 year old coming back to see Connery, their hero in a movie in 1971. It's a really tough order to fill. Well, and I, I, right on top of that, I think they do that exact thing, even just with the opening theme. You mm -hmm. know, they bring back Shirley Bassey because she did Goldfinger, so let's just have her back. She'll do yeah. Diamonds Are Forever, and it will be just as good. Christy, is it just as good? As all the ones before, or <laughs> as well, on her I, Magic Cheese? Even as just Secret Goldfinger, Service. I mean, it's uh, just... Uh, because it's the same singer, and they seem to be wanting to go for that exact same thing, but I, I don't know if they quite capture it. I gotta say, on that one thing, I, I disagree. I, I have always loved that even now with Adele doing the song for Skyfall, that it had the same feel as all of the other opening Bond songs. Um, so that's the reason that I still loved the song for Diamonds Are Forever. And, and that was so memorable to me was that style. So I, I love her. <laughs> I, I'll say this to that. You know, I, I think this is a really good soundtrack. I don't think it's a great soundtrack in the context of the movie. That's a weird thing to say. But I was watching the movie and I was just sort of tuning out the music for some reason. But then I went back a day later and I just listened to the soundtrack on its own. And there's a lot of great stuff in there. Just classic John Barry, classic James Bond. But somehow the edit in the movie, it doesn't always work. I think it's a really good title track, but it's not Goldfinger. And that's, uh, you know, that that's a tough thing. It, it can't be Goldfinger because Goldfinger was Goldfinger. Right. But when you bring back Goldfinger's cousin, so you bring back Shirley Bassey, like Bassey. It's mimicking the original. 
Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the expectation is really high. I, I think it's really good. Um, and, and nobody sounds like Shirley Bassey and nobody sounds quite like John Barry. Um, Would you say nobody does it better? Oh, one might say that. <laughs> <laughs> um but for some reason, and again, it might just be kind of our timeline of compressing all of these down into under a year, that um, it, it starts to feel a little bit of bond by rote. Um, I had read somewhere that you know they had approached um, uh, Paul McCartney about doing the title track for this movie. But then they said, well, no, 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 we, we got to get Shirley Bassey. I mean, come on, we got Connery. Let's go get Shirley Bassey. Let's make sure that nobody leaves this theater under any other impression than that this is classic Bond. So we can't have Sir Paul yet. We'll save him. And what possibly happened was that everybody left the theater thinking, I still like Goldfinger better. I wish I just, you know, I wish that was replaying. Can can we go, is that playing anywhere right now? Are they doing a double feature? We could just go see that one. Uh, you know, right. because I think you're absolutely right. You know, uh, and, and Christy, you nailed it. The song's not bad. It's 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 a good song. The, the problem that happens with it is that you can't help but compare it to Goldfinger because it's the same singer. It's the same style. Uh, you know, uh, John Barry, I think, John, you're you're absolutely right. The soundtrack is great, but I was feeling the same thing. Like, this didn't have the same punch that it did in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is not only a phenomenal soundtrack, but it works so well within the movie. Yeah. Here, the, the edits yeah, are right exactly. on. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's really the fault of the uh, the sound designer and, and the, the sound editor for not working in this the score in a, in a way that I think helps the film. Uh, that's that is definitely something I think that is their fault. So and another really interesting and obviously callback because we're going to bring back the the Bond villain of Bond villains. Uh, we're going to bring back Blofeld but not quite the Blofeld that you knew in either of the previous engagements. Um, I I don't know, because to me, Charles Gray doesn't work at all uh, in this movie. Uh, and I, I don't understand why you wouldn't have gone for Pleasance again or Telly Savalas or I just, I, I don't know. Uh, Christy, what did you end up thinking uh, about him, especially as you've been kind of going through if we rewatch yourself? Sure. Um, for me, it was kind of a 50-50 thing, and I hate to sound like a, that's a cop-out or something, but um, it felt like on the one hand, exactly what you're saying, where, for example, if you watched Game of Thrones, they replaced the guy that played the mountain with a completely different actor. It does take you out of it, and you're sitting there going, well, I'm supposed to believe that this is still Blofeld, but it's a completely different guy. Now I feel like I have to get to know him all over again. Um, but then I like Charles Gray, so I liked it for that reason too, and and what he brought to the character. So I'm kind of in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't hate the depiction of uh, Blofeld here, and it, I could be mistaken, but I I think that there are elements to Charles Gray's portrayal that fall in line with Ian Fleming's description of Blofeld. The look is more in line with what Fleming described here than certainly Donald Pleasant's 
described uh, 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 looks like in You Only Live Twice. So I, I, I don't hate it, um, but it still is a little bit strange. And, and by the way, whoever decided to uh, cast David Bauer as Mr. Slumber, um, they cast a guy who basically looks like Charles Gray playing another character in the same movie. Yes. Which I thought was kind yes, of hilarious. Yes, it was so confusing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was that was kind of uh, a weird choice there. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I were to get nitpicky, I would say that Blofeld lost some of his kind of exotic edge, but at the same time, he sort of feels a little more real, maybe not more than Telly Savalas, but again, like Telly Savalas feels so long ago. It feels so far away from what these movies are now with Sean Connery. Um, I kind of believe this guy just sort of taking over a penthouse in Vegas. For some reason, I would believe that about Telly Savalas because, well, he would use that as the launching pad for the Players Club International. Um, well, I mean, and and we know Bond would probably be a part of that because if you look in his wallet, I mean, he is a card carrying member of the Playboy Club. So, yes, I love that <laughs> you know. little detail. I love that. <laughs> yeah, Charles Gray. I think what's so interesting about him, it comes off to me just personally. It just comes off so silly. Uh, mm. And I think it's the moment that he's in drag. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah. you've gone so far campy that I can't take you seriously as a scary villain anymore. I mean, legitimately, he looks like everybody's ain't great Aunt Bertha, you know, and that's just not scary. Uh, and so and that's the, the best disguise, jokes. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I think that. I think that's what it was. It wasn't so much that Charles Gray was awful. It was that the portrayal and what they had him do as the character made him so just tiny. He just doesn't feel weighty enough as a villain. He doesn't feel scary enough for Bond. He feels like any double O could. I mean, can we just send the FBI after this guy? I mean, we, we don't. Bond even asks at the beginning of this movie, "Is this? I mean, does, does our section really need to be involved in this?" I still yeah. feel like that at the end of the movie. Um, so, it's. I, I think that's the problem. Is is it doesn't feel scary enough, and he he doesn't feel maniacal enough to be the guy who's going to come up with a diamond Death Star in the sky, trying to take over the world. There's this real. I don't know. I guess maybe this is where he becomes Dr. Evil and not Blofeld. You know, I, I'm so glad you said that, though, because um, it, it's funny. Clearly, Dr. Evil looks like Donald Pleasant's Blofeld. But something that I love in this movie, because it's so funny, is the model with all the little buildings and ships. Yes, and it, yes. and, and, and you, you have that exact thing in the Austin Powers movies. I love it. I love it. Oh, I, I just wanted him to be complaining about having some freaking sharks with some freaking laser beams on them. <laughs> be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Another thing that sets this movie apart is probably the most interesting pair of henchmen that we get in any of the Bond films. Uh, and that is Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. Uh, and they only call each other Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. Uh, Which is and so weird. It, 
po- possibly the strangest henchman in, in any movies. Uh, and our and our first, um, well, actually not really our first, but I guess our second four-way into having uh, henchmen that are gay. That has nothing to do with whether or not they're just strange. I mean, they're even played very strangely in the film. I... It, I kind of feel like you need to be uh, on an acid trip to to get this movie fully because their scenes particularly, I, I just don't think you can appreciate him being sober. Look, I, I'll say this. You know, real world, they make no sense. <laughs> if you're trying to, okay, if you're trying to watch this, it's like, well, okay, did, did they play this as a real world believable character? No. Even though James Bond is not a believable character, he, he doesn't exist in the real world, there's something you have to identify with or aspire to in that character. These guys, Kid and Went, are from a different planet, you know? But, but, as a kid, seeing this movie for the first time, They were so memorable. And then going back to watch as an adult and then going back to watch it a a little more studiously for this show, I have to say there's something about their awkwardness that I really like. Okay, let's just get it on the table. Potter Smith is terrible. Yes. Yes. But I love that he's terrible in this because it makes the whole thing so creepy and otherworldly and awkward that you just keep, you sit there watching it trying to guess, okay, now is he terrible because he's terrible in the world of the movie? Or is this just bad direction or bad acting or all of the above? But you kind of can't take your eyes off of it. There's an honesty to the terribleness that I really appreciate. Um, And, I also like that the gay innuendos are there. I, I love that, uh, oh man, for him to sit down and say, uh, Miss Case is, a, is beautiful for a woman. I, that just kills me every time. Um, again, and like you said, Matt, it's important to differentiate. They're not awkward and weird because they're gay. I applaud the movie for having these characters just right out in front. After their first kill, they hold hands as they walk off together in the desert. I think they skipped. There's something... Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Hey, murder brings people together, John. Yeah, there's something so just charming and odd about it. And every time they came on screen, I just kept thinking, all right, how much weirder can this get? And they never failed to deliver the weirdness. (laughs) Yeah, I I completely agree with you. I think that, honestly, they're more memorable, really kind of in a way, than Bond is in the movie because they're so typecast, I guess I would say. I don't know. um, Such specific characters that have these strange qualities about them that you don't expect, and so you just are waiting for more to see what they're going to do next and and have the um, dark humor pun when uh, Bond gets put in the incinerator and, uh, you know, we seem to always have these inside jokes together. And you're just like, I, I love this, even though you feel kind of sorry for how dumb Mr. Kid is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can tell who's wearing the pants in that relationship. Right, right. And and remember, we're talking about uh, Crispin Glover's dad here. So that, that family knows weird. I thought oh, he gosh. looked like him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. See, that says a lot. That It just makes so much <laughs> sense, you know, when you realize you put those two together, everything falls into place of why that's just so weird. Um, and if you think that's weird, 
you know, we have great Bond vehicles, but I never think anyone thought that before Moonraker, Bond would be in a Moon Rover. You know, that... Okay, here's the thing. Everybody loves that moon buggy, but it's just so weird. It's just a strange... Like, the movie just takes this other turn... You know, oh, okay, we discover where the satellite's being built. Okay, now we're going to go on to this fake moon set. Um, just sort of a, a tip of the hat to the tinfoil hat crowd. Um, here's the fake moon set where uh, Stanley Kubrick pulled one over on the American public, right? And uh, astronauts, for some reason, even when Bond crashes the set, they're still moving in slow motion. Yes, even yes! Though even though they're in Earth gravity, you know? It's a cool-looking prop that seems to exist for a little other reason than to say, look at this cool prop that we built, <laughs> you know? I just expect it to be like, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger, yes. you know, with its arms flapping yeah. about. Oh, God, it was just, yep. it, it is. Yep. It feels like he's in a rickety metal box and he's going, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> and yeah. it's it's so strange because I I do have to say I I love that the movie uh you know if we're gonna be in America they do have some great cars and that Mach one Mustang was mm. phenomenal I was I was kind of drooling all over Tiffany Case's car forget Tiffany Case I just wanted her Mach one hey don't forget Tiffany Case but I love her car too yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good segue. Uh, let's talk about the the Bond women in the movie. And and first, uh, before we get to the quote-unquote normal ones, what the heck was up with the Bambi and Thumper scene? Because... Oh, thank you. I Yeah. It's... What? Yeah. I it, So there's it another one of those things that, as a kid, they're very memorable. Unlike Mr. Wendt and Mr. Kidd, they're not memorable for the right reasons, and they just seem completely out of place. And I, and I, again, watching a movie for a podcast like this, and I'm really trying to study every scene, reading every line of dialogue in the subtitles, rewinding, going back, and making sure I didn't miss anything. I watched that scene again, and just my notes, I think, were just, I don't get this. I, I think I literally wrote that down. Now, I, I love the house. I love the John Lautner house. Uh, that's in, I want to say, Palm Springs or Palm Desert, maybe. Um, it's a great location. But, man, they come on screen, and now I just cringe. I don't know, Christy. Uh, as a woman, uh, what did you think? Because, yeah, I'm really interested to, to, because you'd brought it up when we were talking the other day. and. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I agree with John that it, it's definitely memorable. And it was like when I was going back through and watching this film, I went, oh, my God, this was the movie that Bambi and Thumper were in. Ah, Bambi and Thumper. Good to see you again. Um, <laughs> but um, definitely not for a good reason. Um, the thing that I noticed the most was that I told Michael, I said, the only way to describe the way that either they were told to play the role or just how the they were doing it on their own. It seemed like trying to be a tiger. And so it was like, but you're a human being. And there's like these long pauses in a weird position with like one shoulder up like this. And she's like, yeah. And he's going, so like, what's going to happen here? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, I you know, like calling each other Christy's out like, doing right now. Bambi, yes. it's your shot now. Yeah. Okay. 
the delivery is terrible. Everything that they're saying is just delivered horribly. And they're just, she's lounging on a rock when Bond comes in. And I, I kept thinking, okay, th this is a horribly, horribly misguided moment of the Bond producers and writers thinking, you know, we might have taken a hit in the last 10 years for being sexist with some of our female characters. Let's really try to turn that around by having some strong, capable female henchmen who can really take on Bond. Just no. You know, that might have sounded good on paper. It did not work. <laughs> well, and, and, okay, so a little bit of background. Guy Hamilton had been watching the Olympics and was watching the women do the floor routines. And his so he thought some was, gymnasts. <laughs> yes, if he, mm -hmm. one of them kicked you in the face, how, I mean, that would hurt. That's where he got the inspiration for Bambi and Thumper. So I get the idea of having a, a gymnast who's also maybe an assassin. Uh, you know, that's actually not a bad idea. Uh, in fact, I'm sure that most of the assassins that we see that are female on TV have some sort of gymnastics in their background, like a uh, uh, Natasha Romanoff uh, from the uh, Avengers films, you know, Black Widow. Yeah, that kind of stuff exists, but the way in which they do it here just kind of makes absolutely no sense. Um, yeah. And you're know, right, John, it, it really does kind of come off as one of the most sexist things you see in the movie because they are weird play things almost. I mean, they're just lounging around in, in like bikinis and, and, you know, strange rompers. It just it doesn't. <laughs> It's odd. Bambi's it's... outfit felt very 70s, let me say that yes. for sure. Yes, it yeah, did. Yeah. It really did. Uh, I think uh, Strange Rompers, by the way, that that will be uh, the name of my uh, cover band uh, <laughs> for, I, I think it'll be my Jefferson Airplane cover band. That's actually yeah. the name of Strange Things Season 2 is Strange Rompers. Oh, Strange Rompers. Yeah, oh, okay. good. So, good. Stranger Excellent. Things. Yeah, Stranger Rompers. Yeah, yeah. Stranger Rompers. Yeah. So. <laughs> good. Uh, okay, let's get to an actual uh, Bond woman in the film. And Jill St. John as uh, Tiffany Case, who is the diamond smuggler who really doesn't seem to enjoy clothes all that much. No, not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I love her, the way that she played this character, though. Um, the confidence... And, um, you know, that he comes in the room and, you know, I, I don't remember what the line was, but he's like, you know, um, don't you want to put something on? And she's like, why? You know, <laughs> her, her whole aura is just like, I do what I want. I, I'll say this, you know, um, thinking back to watching these movies for the first time, um, Tiffany Case was never one of my favorite Bond women. When I think of iconic Bond women who really stand out to me, if I go to the 60s, you know, it's pussy galore. Just hands down, no question about it. Um, if I look at the 70s, then uh, Barbara Bach as Triple X. We haven't gotten there yet, breaking the timeline, I know. And, and Michelle Yeoh is fantastic. Tiffany Case just never stood out to me. Watching this again for this podcast, I have to say I gained a new appreciation for her. Um, she's beautiful. There's no question about it. Her wardrobe is stunning. She looks, you know, the outfits are great. Even the bad 70s outfits are great on her. There's something to her character that I think, unfortunately, is a little dated 
and, and it's not the wardrobe, it's not the hair. The thing that's dated is that I feel like she either chose or was given the direction to play her character more for comedy. So you start out with her being this badass diamond smuggler who is just sort of watching people get killed in her, uh, in her apartment building. But then she ends up playing, I, I feel, a bit more for comedy. Just sort of the fish out of water, I'm along for the ride. Literally along for the ride when the car goes up on two wheels. This would have been a more capable character had this movie been made either a few years later or had maybe been given another tweak in the, the writing and directing. I don't think that's any reflection on Jill St. John. I think she probably got the script and figured, okay, this is a comic book. There's a bunch of crazy stuff happening here. I can really just play over the top and no amount of over the top will be too much. So that's what she's delivering. But at the same time, she's fun and she's sexy and she's got at least a little bit of an edge to her that she's wrapped up in diamond smuggling and she might go to jail for 20 years and she's trying to weasel her way out of that. You know, that so the motivations for her at least for the most part, makes sense. I, I, I just, I, you know, I kind of always cringe when we get to the end and she's there in a bikini holding machine gun that she doesn't know how to use. Ugh, it was an insult that, to women, okay? All right, see, there you go. I, I'm, I will admit, I'm a gun enthusiast, and I was like, what is happening? See, she could be tough and badass and in a bikini, and she can own that gun. I, I think that was, and I really like the, the case that you laid out. See what I did there? Uh, see what you did. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah. I don't know why I called that out. Now I just feel like a cheese ball. Anyway, <laughs> so what what happens with her is that she starts off really, really well. I mean, she is her own woman. She could care less about James Bond or whoever it is that's come to see her. Uh, she's there to make sure that she does her job. She does it well. She's fully in control. Uh, you know. She is confident and cool. And then, like you said, somewhere along the way, that goes by the wayside and she becomes like this incompetent boob, no pun intended, uh, mm. that, like you said, Christy, doesn't even know how to use the machine gun in the end. I mean, and, and, and so you're left with her having Bond's bad mixtape in her butt. Uh, and <laughs> it, it, it just... It's frustrating because the way she started off, if they had played her a little bit more seriously throughout the entire film, it would have been a much more memorable experience for women everywhere uh, for this role. It, it, the problem is, is that like the rest of the movie, she de-evolves. So mm -hmm. by the end, she's just the character too. And, and it's frustrating because I think she started off in a place that could have been really interesting if they continued on that trajectory. Yeah, I agree that she's not the most memorable of all the Bond women. Um, I think when I think Bond women, the first one I think of is Bridget Bardot. And yeah, I, I agree that it, it started out in this great place. And then by the end, it was Bond calling her stupid. <laughs> um, so that was unfortunate. But I also don't want to sound like an uber feminist either. But yeah, I think that it wasn't the actress's fault that it ended up that way at all. I, I agree with John on that. Which is interesting because, you know, we end up with one of the um, most aptly named, I guess, Bond women, uh, Plenty O'Toole. Uh, make of that what you will. 
named after would. her father. Yeah, <laughs> that was exactly. The <laughs> um, there's not a lot to say about her because n- she doesn't get to do very much, and it's it's kind of unfortunate. I mean, she's just there to be the sacrificial lamb, and it's to me, I was like, I rem I remembered her for some reason having more to do, I, but you know, she's there. She meets Bond. They play craps, and then she dies. That's pretty much it. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I feel like when people rightfully criticize Bond movies for having these tropes like the sacrificial lamb character, this is really the apex of that. And, and it's too bad. I mean, uh, I didn't realize that Lana Wood was Natalie Wood's sister. That that was interesting. I knew that she had been in Playboy, you know, a few years before this movie. Um, she's beautiful. She's fun. But, yeah, I mean, she's just there to look good, to be a distraction, and then get thrown out of a window. It's too bad that that scene uh, wasn't kept in the movie where she sneaks back in and uh, Bond is with Tiffany Case. She grabs Tiffany's purse. That's how she ends up at Tiffany Case's house. So too bad we didn't have that series of events because the next thing we know, she's drowned in Tiffany's pool. And we don't know why and how she ended up there. So um, for, for a movie that was already meandering and had a lot of good stuff cut out, um, you kind of needed that moment. Um, I don't know if I would have rather have had that or have Sammy Davis Jr. It's a tough call. <laughs> but yeah, there's really not much more to say about her. I don't know, Christy? You got anything else? I actually thought that they were going to play her like they did Tiffany Case or like, you know, that she's like this double personality where she comes in as the distraction and then they get up to the room and then suddenly she pulls out a gun and she's like, you know, where are the diamonds? I thought that's the way they were going to go with it back, you know, when I first saw it the very first time. And then, yeah, it was sad to see it suddenly be like, and she's gone. Uh, but but first, uh, we get her dress off so that she can get thrown <laughs> yeah. ha- half naked into right. a pool, and then we don't see her again until she's dead in a pool. Uh, yeah, it's it's. So, do you think uh, they only wanted her in the movie so that they could have that first initial line between them where she says, "Hi, I'm Plenty," and he goes, "I bet you are." <laughs> I'm I I have, would not put it past them, honestly. Uh, I yeah. I really wouldn't at this point. Um, well, and, and it's so interesting because I, I think so much of what we talked about in, in this, this film has the most interesting setting to me. And, you know, Bond movies are really known for visiting exotic locations most of the time. And, and, and you're like, oh, I want to go there or there. I mean, just think about the last time we were in the Swiss Alps, you know, uh, with just incredible scenery. This movie takes place in one of the most boring places ever in Las Vegas. And at this point, it's not Vegas as we think of it. It's Vegas in the 70s. It is a hard-nosed gambling town. There's nothing really attractive or fun or enjoyable about being there. And I, I wanted to ask you guys, because I'll just put it out there. Honestly, the movie feels tired and it feels boring. I was having trouble staying invested in this one. And part of it, I think, was that we didn't visit anywhere interesting in the film. To, so I wasn't even visually interested, you know, uh, uh, on where we were and what we were doing. What did you guys think about the setting? And 
what might we could have done to change? I mean, where could we have put this to maybe? Because you could go anywhere. It doesn't have to be Vegas. It could be any gambling town. You know, I'm thinking like just go to Rio or something. Uh, I don't know. What What do you think, Christy? Yeah, I, I think maybe it would have been better suited to be like a, a big city like New York or something um, and maybe have, you know, them go off somewhere. Like, I mean, you know, they did go to Holland at the beginning and then they end up in Vegas, but you didn't get much of Holland. So I, I agree with you on that. Um, but then also, I actually, if I've been to Vegas twice and I, I really liked it, not for the reasons most people do. I've seen a lot of movies, as I'm sure both of you have, where they've got Vegas as a feature. And um, so to me, it's kind of like that comforting feeling of something I've seen so many times. But I get how it could make you feel like it's tired. And um, maybe they wanted the feel of that scenery to be um, like the menacing desert kind of thing to make you feel like there's some stakes in that sense. But yeah, I think that they could have made it more interesting. Yeah, um, I don't disagree at all. I mean, I, I think, look, here's the thing. This is not Rat Pack Vegas, so it's not cool like that. And this is right after Elvis's comeback in Vegas. So he did the 68 comeback special, and he started his, uh, his contract at the International Hotel, which is the stand-in here for the White House. Um, and then that became the... Uh, the Hilton, where Star Trek The Experience was, and then that became now the sad tomb that it is, the LVH Las Vegas Hotel. Do not go there. Um, uh, so th this is a weird period where Vegas is just not cool. Now, I like things about Vegas, so I kind of like seeing the old hotel signs and remembering, oh yeah, I remember driving by the Frontier, which is now gone, and the old sign for the dunes, you know, but that's really about it. Um, Circus Circus really hasn't changed that much. If you go there now, it kind of looks the way it does in the movie. Um, we spend a lot of time on the uh, girl-gorilla gag, which uh, is, is kind of weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's something about the look and feel here that doesn't quite work. And, and it's catching Vegas at the wrong time in its history. And I think it's honestly, it's catching the U.S. at the wrong time, too. Things don't look right. You know, that, that Mach 1 is beautiful, but the other cars in this movie are ugly. A lot of them are. Um, and then the clothes run the gamut from glamorous that you see on Jill St. John to just ghastly on a lot of the other people in frame. So it's not the cool, slick, Even Bond, let's be honest, when he's yeah, in that like, right. rust-colored number, I, oh. I'm i I'm choking back some McVomit. Right, <laughs> right, right. So it, it's, yeah, it's just not right. Um, now, I will say that I, I like, I like the concept of, a character like Willard White. You know, if you're gonna base it on Howard Hughes or loosely inspired by a dream about Howard Hughes, sure, okay, what does a guy with all this power do once he has and can he be manipulated by somebody else like Blofeld? Interesting idea. Um, and, and yeah, Jimmy Dean, same thing as Jill St. John. He must have gotten the script and just thought, this is a comic book, I'm just gonna have fun with it. I can't overplay this. There's no possible way I can overplay this. So he does. Um, 
the scenes with Bond uh, scaling the hotel wall after he's ridden the elevator up. Look, I know as a stuntman, and then I know that when we cut to Bond, he's on a set and it, it's a, a rear projection. My palms were still sweaty during that. You know, it, it's an intensely done scene. So there, there are things about Vegas in this movie that I like, but overall, it just doesn't feel like Bond. It doesn't feel like his Gloria and Istanbul and London and, you know, all these other great locations that we want to see. Now, to an international audience, maybe they were very excited to see Vegas, but to us jaded Americans, no. And I actually would like to add with what you said, um, the scene where he's leaving in the um, moon buggy and they're having the police <laughs> chase and then the three wheelers come in and everything, it felt very much like a, a buddy cop movie from the 70s. Like you were taken yeah, right. out into a completely right. different movie. Yeah, it really does. With the cars it, it, and a, everything. Well, it kind of goes back to this movie feeling like they just sort of threw everything at the wall to see what would stick. And even some of the things that didn't stick, they, they scooped it up and put it in there anyway. Mm-hmm. It made me wonder, like, why you wouldn't choose, like, a Monte Carlo or something to put this in. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I understand you're doing the Howard Hughes, but just use that as a frame of reference and move him somewhere else. And again, Monte Carlo, even Christy, you mentioned New York City. So you go to Atlantic City at this point, uh, anywhere yeah. that just adds some more color. I mean, I, I, you could. Because uh, you would still have the gambling and everything if you do Atlantic yes, City and yes. just be a little bit more cool. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I, I think just add something to that that makes it feel exotic and interesting. And I think the frustrating thing is that this is tied back to what we talked about way earlier in the show. It's that Americanization of Bond and it's just not working. It really isn't. Um, It's, it's not feeling bond enough. And part of that is being in places that, that make you want to visit there. You know, I don't think anybody thought saw this movie and thought, honey, let's go to Vegas. Maybe we'll meet Jimmy Dean, uh, you know, uh, that's, it's just not what you think. So, uh, I guess, uh, it comes down to this. It's, it's time for the reckoning. Christy, what would you, you think you'd end up rating Diamonds Are Forever? After rewatching again, I'd probably give it a five out of 10 drinks of sherry, um, because it, has these moments that are great like you were saying john with you know the um the climbing of the hotel definitely i'm afraid of heights i had sweaty palms i thought that part was done well um and and i like the campiness because of campiness i remember from bond um and and the bad jokes but i think that for all the reasons that you want this to be good like you know the the blofeld thing and like possibly bringing back Lazenby and then finding out you're not going to get him. Um, And then a lot of ways it feeling silly and less like you have a strong villain or a strong plot um, that really took me out of really enjoying the movie and thinking it was a good quality film. Um, But I still like it because it's something so memorable and funny. Yeah. um, I I think, Hmm. Wow. You know, uh, that's a good argument for the things that the movie gets right and the things that the movie gets wrong. I think the tough thing for me is to figure out, does a movie succeed in all the things that it wants to do? And, and if it does, 
how much does it succeed? Um, so, Matt, are, are we doing out of 10 or are we doing out of 5? Uh, whichever you feel most comfortable with. So, uh, you know. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say, I think I'm going to have to go with 5. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go with 10. And I, I'm actually going to uh, copy you, Christy. Uh, don't sue me. I'm going to go with uh, 5 out of 10. I'm going to go with uh, 5 out of 10 uh, Peter Frank's Playboy Club cards. Um, that's just, I don't know, for some reason, that's a thing that I'll always remember about this movie is that club card. There are little things that I like, little details. By the way, everybody should have a sign in their home or workplace that says, if in doubt, ask. I think yes. that's an important <laughs> thing that we take away from uh, Blofeld's lair on the, uh, on the oil rig. There are things about this movie that are designed beautifully, like the penthouse in Vegas. There are things about this movie that are designed horribly, like everything else in Vegas. The biggest problems this movie seems to have would be the pacing, because it really just does feel all over the map. Um, there are scenes that seem comically sped up, like you said, the, the chase through the desert on a uh, moon buggy. Uh, the comically fast turnaround time for a corpse to be cremated and uh, the diamonds put into an urn, I, that just always amazes me. But then there are things that just seem slow and dull and they didn't know how to edit their way out of it. It's really such a shame. Um, we all wanted this to be better. Obviously, the anticipation was there because Connery was coming back for this to be better. And it just doesn't quite fire the way that it should. So I'll say this. I enjoyed going back and watching this movie for the things that I rediscovered that I liked. That fight scene in the elevator between Bond and Peter Franks, wow, that is really good. Um, finding layers to Jill St. John's performance that I didn't see there before, really came out with a new appreciation for her, even if the character kind of takes a dive at some point in the movie. So it's not an irredeemable movie. It just makes me think, wow, how would I feel in 1971 if I had grown up watching and loving the Bond movies? And my disappointment level would probably be, it would probably land me on a ranking of about a five out of 10. Do you want to ask though, um, just because I thought of this, what was everyone's favorite moment of the movie? Oh, that's a good question. Because I do have one if you want me to start. Yeah, mm -hmm. go for it. Go for it. Do it. And it's so odd, but I think it was my favorite moment because I just went, what the, like, seriously, we've got one thing after another that you're going, where did this come from? Way out of left field. Um, toward the end, when you come into this room of Felix coming to visit Bond and Tiffany Case, and she's laying on an aquarium bed <laughs> with a white fur <laughs> over her body and like one shoulder. And she's just chilling like, hey, I, I don't understand why you feel like you need to include that. Why <laughs> that's relevant at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, I have to hand it to you. That's a good, memorable scene. Why not? I, I'll tell you, I, I always remembered the end of the movie so well with them being on the Canberra. I, I'm kind of a ship geek, so I had to take note of what ship they were on. Clearly, it was a set, but it was supposed to be uh, the can, uh, Canberra. Um, but now I kind of hated that scene. It just seemed so gimmicky and comic booky that I 
I did not enjoy that scene again watching it this time. Um, I actually really like Bond meeting Tiffany Case. I think it's kind of goofy that she would have this giant device in her wardrobe that would show just a, a huge blow up of a thumbprint. I, that's just so weird and why not? I, I'm going to go with it because it's in the movie. I, I might also say that the the fight between uh, Peter Franks and Bond is probably a highlight just because it's so intense and it's in such a close quarters that it doesn't feel, it, it kind of harkens back to, it kind of harkens back to uh, the fight on the train in From Russia With Love. Mm-hmm. And is that what, what all elevators were like in, in the 70s though? <laughs> no, no. those definitely older than the 70s. <laughs> That's such a good question. You know what? I I think it's for me when Bond lands on the throne. Oh, yeah. And it's a literal throne toilet with all of these uh, things around him. Yeah, cameras that you can watch, you know, with the televisions, a phone right there, newspapers. I mean, everything that you could want to keep yourself occupied there for a long time. It was, I love that. I just think it's hilarious. And then Bond's just kind of sitting there when he lands on that throne, looking around, trying to figure out exactly where he is and realizes, I think, where he is. And he sits there for an abnormally long period of time for somebody who realizes he's sitting on a toilet. Um, you you have that though, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, okay. who doesn't have one yeah. of those? Yeah. So, um, no, that's a great question, Christy. So, and uh, worth pointing out because I think there are, fun things to this movie. Uh, I, I, I think the movie actually starts off on a good foot. I do think that, that even the beginning scene does quickly slide into potato muck. Um, <laughs> literally? Yeah, yeah, literally and figuratively. But there are some fun things about the movie. I think that in the end, you're absolutely right, John. You know, this is... It's just right there in the middle. It's so blasé that there's there's really not a ton that does stand out, and that's frustrating and it's sad. Although this movie does make me glad that Sean Connery will you know never say never again. Uh, he'll he'll never return in an official Bond film, and I, I think that's, that's okay. Right. Uh, that's right. And so it's not okay, Matt. but that means we we get to jump into a whole new bond uh the next time as we'll talk about live and let die but yeah i think this is this is definitely you know five out of ten hours on the throne so um and uh (laughs) hopefully you know one of the things that you know i want to encourage people while we're talking about these films is it's enjoyable to watch them because one of the neat things about watching all the Bond movies in order is you get to watch the progression of cinema and the way in which it changes. And, you know, sometimes they're with the times and and it's, it's really good. Sometimes it's not, but it's, it's a fun education in watching cinema grow up, especially um, something this iconic. And I think every, Bond movie, as you pointed out, Christy, it has fun moments that we can pick out and enjoy and will stay with us and we let the rest go. So it's been a blast getting to talk about this and I'm so excited to continue the series with with both of you as we'll dive into Roger Moore next time. 
But um, yeah, want to say thank you because the associate producers here through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, and Norman Lau, they're the ones who make sure that the 602 Club comes to you each and every week. And 2017 is going to be a big year. Go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and, and see how you can make sure that each and every week, all of the content that we put out here on Trek FM keeps coming to you. Uh, we definitely need your support as a listener. And just think of it in, in the end, it's a lot like PBS. We, we can't make it happen all on our own. So we need your help. We've got some amazing perks that are coming to you exclusive content we've got early access to content uh we've even got the patreon roundtable happening every month so check it all out on patreon.com slash trek fm and just see how every little bit helps uh now both of you thank you so much for walking through diamonds are forever for me uh it is true diamonds are forever and really uh a girl's best friend so, Christy, uh, as we get closer to Valentine's Day, I guess we know what uh, you'll be asking for. But uh, when you're not asking for diamonds, uh, where can people find you online if they would like to talk more Bond or other great geeky things? Sure. You know, just go to uh, diamondsmuggler.com slash Tiffany Case. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Cops, don't come get me. Um, I, I'm uh, primarily on Instagram at morechristy, M-O-R-R-C-H-R-I-S-T-Y, um, and also on Twitter, but not as often because nobody cares about Twitter anymore. And John, uh, there is so much going on for you, my friend. Uh, you have many things happening, so make sure everybody knows where they can find you and, of course, about Mission Log. Sure, yeah, the best place to find me is Mission Log, Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, uh, roddenberry.com, and or missionlogpodcast.com. Um, we are also reachable Mission Log Pod on Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to reach me personally, um, Christy, I know it's so 2011, but uh, probably Twitter is still the best place to find me. Um, and that would be DVD Geeks. Um, so you can harass me there. John, uh, nobody has DVDs anymore. <laughs> I know, uh, right? So yeah, that part is very 2007. Man, but, streaming uh, geeks would be so much more applicable. <laughs> I, I, I love I love my collectible media, though. I love uh, me my too. physical media. I, I'm, I am right there with you. I'm, I'm still a physical media guy. I, I mean, I like streaming i love you know we can get the digital copies but i really enjoy yeah. having the physical copies so i'm right there with you you can find me on twitter at matt rushing 2 i'm on instagram at m rushing you can also find me here on the network doing the orb with chris jones uh, we're talking about deep space nine as well as uh this star wars the 602 club collection both that and the 602 club and the orb all on itunes so make sure you check those out uh subscribe and of course uh, hit us up with a star rating and review I'm over on the Nerd Party Network talking about Star Wars with John Mills. We just hit episode 50. We're super excited. Uh, and we also uh, celebrated by doing our commentary of Star Wars A New Hope. Check that out. I think you're going to love it. You can find us on iTunes there, of course. And talking about every single chapter of Harry Potter from book one to book seven with Drea Kaufman on Owl Post, a Harry Potter podcast. So find both of those on iTunes and on the nerdparty.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear?
Diamonds are forever They are all I need 